All right, our teaching tonight comes from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, the famous account for Palm Sunday. Here we read, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches that they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is God's word. Many of you probably know, most of Jesus' ministry is actually conducted up north in Galilee. That doesn't mean that he's unfamiliar with Jerusalem, though. And in fact, he made all the pilgrimages each year for the major festivals. And so he's actually very well acquainted with it. This is going to be the last time he makes the trip, though. And a couple miles outside of Jerusalem, you can see a couple miles east at Bethany, Jesus begins to do something that he has actually forbidden his disciples to do up until this point, which is to publicly acknowledge that he is, in fact, the Lord. See, up until this point, he said, like after miracles, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone. Why? Because he knows that if they start talking about him as Lord, things are going to escalate quickly. And sure enough, what do you find? The moment they start publicly acknowledging him as Messiah and Lord on Palm Sunday, it's less than a week's time and he gets publicly executed. He knew exactly what he was talking about here. In prepping for entry into the city, What Jesus does is he tells a couple of his disciples to go ahead into the next village. And specifically what he says is you will find a colt tied there, uh, which no one has ever ridden until untie it and bring it here to me. And we don't actually know if Jesus has made a previous arrangement uh, with the owners or if this is just like Jewish hospitality to pilgrims who are coming for the festival or if this is specifically a miracle by which Jesus just like willed this to happen or knew it would happen. We don't necessarily have to read miracles into things that might not be miracles. There are plenty of miracles in the Bible. And that's not even really the point here. The point is very carefully, this is a curated image that Jesus is going to present to the surrounding world. Now, what you got to keep in mind is Middle Eastern leaders who went off to war would go off to war, not on donkeys, they would go on horses. But if a leader was riding a donkey, it probably symbolized the fact that they were coming in peace because you don't go to war on a donkey, right? Jesus is saying is as he ushers in his kingdom moving forward, his kingdom in this world is not going to be established by way of war or violence or any other threats to this world. And in fact, Pontius Pilate says the exact same thing when he evaluates Jesus later in the week. Clearly, this guy is no threat to the world, right? This is a humble, non-threatening, carefully curated image riding in on the colt of a donkey. As Jesus is riding into the city, the people start essentially throwing down their coats, their cloaks, onto a pathway in front of him, as well as waving palm branches and throwing those on the ground in front of him too. And this all has significance. I'm pretty confident that even the people there on that day had very little understanding of what all this imagery actually meant. It's difficult for us too. 
But let me just give you a couple things that are packed into the Palm Sunday imagery. First thing is, it's an Old Testament prophecy that's being fulfilled. The famous one is Zechariah 9.9 that says the Messiah is going to come in riding on a donkey. The second piece that's in this is the fact that kings did in fact at times ride donkeys. We see this in the Old Testament on a number of different occasions. The Romans were unfamiliar with this. It's one of the reasons why the Romans don't seem to have any issue with Jesus having a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. You notice they don't, the soldiers don't seem bothered by this at all. Why? Because this is not a triumphal entry in their estimation. The triumphal entry was actually a technical term that Romans used when they killed 5,000 soldiers. When a general went off to war, killed 5,000 enemies, he would take the rest of the captives and bring them back either as slaves or as entertainment that he would send into the arena to be torn apart by the beasts, like for sport. But it wasn't this. This isn't a triumphant entry. And so the, the Romans aren't threatened by this whatsoever. Specifically, number three, Jesus' choice of a colt over a donkey. So kings rode donkeys. Kings didn't typically ride baby donkeys. Almost no one rode baby donkeys. The foal of a donkey is intentionally humble. Now remember what our theme throughout the entire Gospel of Mark has been. We've said it's from throne to cross and back. It's a trajectory of humiliation in this life for Christ. And by riding it on a baby donkey, it's showing that whole theme of humility. The fourth thing would be that in the Old Testament, donkeys were also used. In fact, any beasts of burden that were set aside and unused generally were set aside for a sacred purpose. So the fact that this one has never been ridden, the fact that it's, it's set aside, indicates that when Jesus rides it into Jerusalem, this isn't just a random choice, but this is God's purposes and God's results that are being carried out into Jerusalem here. And the fifth thing, is the fact that the language surrounding this baby donkey here very clearly seems to indicate that it's unbroken. And by unbroken, I mean, so it's, it's not only one that hasn't been trained, it's a baby, so we're pretty confident it hasn't been broken at all. We'll come back to that in a second, but just understand that in the big picture of Palm Sunday, you have all of this imagery. You have a king fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy who's coming in humility, is serving God and fulfilling his purposes by demonstrating God's power over creation. All of that exists in Palm Sunday. Now, that last part, that last part about power over creation, I think, I think Western people don't, <laughs> we Westerners, so far as I can tell, invented the concept of cowboy. And uh, we don't really have like a genre of like Western, Westerns anymore, but the cowboy concept where we, like if you're a city person your whole life and don't really ride animals, you kind of assume that if you are, uh, a really, you know, proficient cowboy. You can just run and jump on a wild stallion and take it wherever you want, something like this. If you just Google idiot cowboy, you get something like this that would come up. But we forget that it's actually, it takes, I think it's something like two months to break a, uh, a donkey like this. You can't just hop on it. And what that means then is if Jesus hops onto the saddle of a baby donkey that's never been ridden and never been broken, it just submits to him. Why? because it knows him as Lord better than most humans know him as Lord. And that last concept here, look, the idea that God is Lord over the earth, that when the Messiah comes, all creation worships and submits to him, it's further established here by the fact that they're waving palm branches. Have you ever wondered about this? Like, why palm branches? If you look in the Old Testament, you find a bunch of interesting spots that say things like Psalm 96 says, trees will sing for joy when the Lord comes to rule the earth. Isaiah 55 says, Trees of the field will clap their hands at his coming, at the coming of the Lord and the Messiah. 
When they're waving palm branches, essentially what they're saying is, because this is the one prophesied Lord and Messiah, all creation, including humans, but not exclusive to humans, all creation exists to worship him. So we're worshiping. We're all worshiping him right now. Right? Well, you enter into the city and the people are shouting, Hosanna. And you maybe have even heard this. I know I've certainly remember hearing this before, that the people who shouted Hosanna on Palm Sunday are the same people who shouted crucify him on Good Friday. Technically speaking, that's probably not true. Uh, The people who shouted Hosanna on Palm Sunday are very likely Jesus' Galilean followers who are very familiar with his ministry. And for that matter, also probably a bunch of the people who were at the funeral of his friend Lazarus who witnessed the resurrection. Those people are probably, it's probably in the number of thousands, who are cheering him on the way in. The people who shouted crucify him on Good Friday are most likely primarily Jewish leaders and Judeans in general. But they're shouting Hosanna. What exactly does that mean? This is, I'm going to use this as a little bit of a metaphor, not understanding what this is and yet shouting it at the same time. It's a little bit of a metaphor for spiritual ignorance and we're going to talk about what that means. But just the background, Hosanna is actually an Aramaic word. What's Aramaic? Well, okay, so the Old Testament, the language of the Israelites in the Old Testament was Hebrew. The Old Testament is largely, mostly written in Hebrew. However, the Israelites, if you recall, had to go off into captivity for a couple generations, and that'll change your language. So when the Israelites come back in the ancient Near East, primarily at that time, then what you have spoken is a language, it's a little bit of a mutation called Aramaic. Uh, eventually, it's going to be supplanted by Arabic in the Middle East, But for this time period, in first century AD, for instance, you have Aramaic. And what that does is it explains all these non-translated terms and phrases that we have in the New Testament. Have you ever noticed this? How the rest of the New Testament is translated and then all of a sudden it'll say like, and the guy said, talithakum, or raka, or korban, or eloi, eloi, laba sabachthani. Why doesn't that get translated? If you're going to translate all the rest of it, why wouldn't that get translated? What the translator is doing is they're telling you this is a very distinct and special Aramaic phrase that is being used. Hosanna is one of those phrases. So what does it mean? Technically speaking, it means it's a formal way of saying, Lord, please save us. And the implication attached to it is that you're changing rulers. I don't want to be ruled by this thing or this person anymore. I want to be ruled by you moving forward. That's Hosanna. And actually, what we have here in verses 9 through 10, they come from Psalm 118. And interestingly, during the festival of Passover, every year the Jews would sing through Psalms 113 through Psalm 118. These words would have already been on their mouths. What's unique here is it's the first time that these words are directly being pointed at Jesus as the fulfillment of these prophecies. My question for you, and the question we'll get into in the applications is, the people who are shouting Hosanna towards Jesus, what did they think he was going to save them from? Were they shouting, were they praising him because they believed he was going to save them from their sins, or were they praising him because they thought he was going to save them from the Romans? It's really interesting that two different people can sing the exact same worship song and have completely different conceptions in their mind when they do it. Okay, we're going we're gonna to need to drill into that a little bit more, but for right now, the last point is, is uh, simply this. The triumphal entry, so far as we can tell, began late uh, in the morning. It ended late in the afternoon. And 
Jerusalem was so overcrowded during the festivals. Like it was not, it could not house as many people as pilgrimaged there. And so for reasons of overcrowding, probably for reasons of safety too, Jesus and his disciples don't spend the night there. They spend the night out in Bethany. But before they leave for the day, Jesus peeks his head inside the temple courtyard. And this is the largest like footprint area of the temple, the, the main courtyard. This is the courtyard that the Gentiles were allowed to go in. This is also the courtyard where all the commerce took place. What do you mean commerce? Because when you came to make sacrifices, you probably didn't bring your sacrifice down from Galilee. You probably purchased a sacrifice there. And so in the court of the Gentiles, uh, Josephus, the historian, says that on a given Passover week, 25,000 lambs could be purchased, sold, and sacrificed. In other words, it's like Wall Street. It's like if you go into this courtyard, the place where the Gentiles are supposed to get to know the God of Israel is a place that very clearly is materialistic at this point. It's greedy and it's an abusive religion. And it's not surprising that on the very next day, on Monday, Jesus is going to come back and he is in righteous rage going to flip over those money changer temples and money changer tables. Uh, he understands very clearly, firsthand witnessing it, this world, both the secular world and the religious world, need absolute overturning at this moment. And so he's going to lay down his life to do exactly that. Okay? What does it all mean? I got two application points for you. First one. We're just going to talk about a right-side-up gospel and the right-side-up life when you hear the gospel. But the right-side-up gospel. Uh, I mentioned the most, most of the people who cheered Jesus on Palm Sunday, they, they probably weren't the ones shouting crucify him on Good Friday, and nonetheless, they weren't there. Like, so they were maybe shouting Hosanna on Palm Sunday, but they abandoned him by Good Friday. And what does that mean? It probably suggests that they didn't understand the gospel that they were hearing on Palm Sunday. Um, Jesus' own disciples, Jesus' own disciples, by and large, didn't understand this until after the Ascension and Pentecost. And so it's not surprising that, you know, we, years later, in retrospect, can look back on this imagery and unpack it and see like, oh yeah, here's an image of a redeemer, here's an image of a savior, here's an image of a king. But people in those days were, by and large, fairly confused. And I actually think that same gospel is confusing to a lot of people still today. What do I mean? I alluded to it earlier, the fact that two different people can sing the same worship song and have two different conceptions of God in their mind at that time. I think there were likely thousands of people on Palm Sunday who are properly recognizing, acknowledging, and proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. The problem is they don't actually know who the Messiah is supposed to be. You understand the difference? It's one thing to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. It's another thing to understand what Lord and Savior actually means. Yes, there are a lot of people in the world that don't acknowledge Jesus as Lord. However, there are also a lot of people in the world who acknowledge Jesus as Lord, but they have no concept of what Lord, Messiah, Savior actually means. Uh, those are the people on Palm Sunday, so far as I can tell. They saw Jesus as a Messiah who would improve their life circumstances, who would empower them over the nuisances of our lives. But to say, save us from our irritations, is very different than to say, save us from our sins. And so... They identified Jesus as Messiah, but they did not identify the correct concept of Messiah. They expected a triumphalist Messiah, not a suffering Messiah, not a meek Messiah, not a Messiah that was going to the cross, and certainly not a Messiah that was going to require his followers to pick up their crosses in order to follow him. 
riding, you know, this, this baby donkey into town, I think is, it's already starting, it's so humble, it's starting to adapt some of their expectations of who or what the Messiah was going to be. And the big idea here, the big idea is this fact that the vehicle by which Jesus ushers in his kingdom is humility, weakness, and suffering. That is terrifying and actually even really offensive to our flesh that our Messiah would have to die. Um, It was offensive to the disciples. Remember, three chapters in a row, Jesus teaches this to his disciples and Peter has enough and he takes Jesus aside and he scolds him and he says, you don't know what you're talking about. That's how offensive uh, the idea of a suffering Messiah was, uh, even to the disciples. To the human flesh, it's offensive, but it's biblically undeniable. Uh, Jesus is making the case, I'm not going to ride into town on a majestic steed to conquer people and enslave them by force. I'm going to trot into town on a colt of a donkey. I'm going to come in peace and I'm going to set people free from their sins by laying down my life unjustly, unfairly, undeservedly, but I'm going to lay down my life at the cross for them. He's not a Messiah that your flesh wants. He's not the Messiah that your ego wants. Uh, I was reading a, a number of different things that kind of converged for me this week. This, it hit me like a ton of bricks. It's the first time I've ever put two and two together on these things, but I, I ended up reading a portion of Revelation. And John, I think, explains this concept in Revelation in a way that I've never understood or, or, or received before. But look at this. In Revelation 5, he says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll in its seven seals. But then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. You see what's going on here? John was looking for a what? Ferocious lion. He didn't find a ferocious lion. What did he find? A slain lamb. The natural instinct of the flesh is to look for a Messiah to be a ferocious lion, when in reality what he ends up being is a slain lamb. What he's saying in all of this is his kingdom does not advance in life by means of the teeth of lions. It advances in life by means of the blood of his lambs. It's a very different concept. The Messiah is not who our flesh expects him to be. He's actually the opposite. And salvation does not come the way we expect it to come. It comes the opposite. And the debt of every last sin of you and me is not paid the way one might expect religiously, that God comes and shakes us down and squeezes the life out of us and flogs us until we've done enough righteous acts by which we can make ourselves right with him. No, it's the opposite. It's the opposite. Your salvation comes by God allowing his own life to be squeezed out of himself. Perhaps the most amazing and most beautiful thing in all of this is God actually, through that particular process, makes himself even more beautiful to us than if he were, quote-unquote, just merely perfect or powerful or holy. And here's what I mean by this. For example, if Adam and Eve never sinned and they procreated and all of us were just living right there in the garden, one big happy family, Would we be impressed by God? Yes. Would we be amazed by God? Yes. Would we admire God? Yes. And yet, 
One of the things that I say at pretty much every wedding that I do is it's impossible to know the depth of someone's love for you unless you're able to see what they're willing to go through in order to be in relationship with you. The Son of God went through hell for you. That's how you know how much he loves you. So we don't just admire him as perfect and we don't just fear him as holy, but we love him reciprocally and out of gratitude. Paradoxically, the worse the world becomes, the more beautiful God becomes. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. That's how it works. Uh, A world that'll be resurrected and restored to perfection at the cost of a savior is a more beautiful world than a world that would have just always stayed perfect perpetually forever. It's honestly, if you catch this, if this clicks, it's a mind-blowing concept. Think about it like this. Let me take it from a different angle. If this world had always just been perpetually perfect, you know what wouldn't exist in the world? Bravery. You know what wouldn't exist in the world? Undeserved faithfulness. If this world was always perpetually perfect, you know what wouldn't exist in the world? Sacrifices. And if the world and you and I were always just perpetually perfect, there would exist no such thing in the world as unconditional love. I'm only getting this concept myself, so I'm probably not explaining it very well. What I'm trying to get at is there can't be a resurrection unless there's a cross before it. There can't be healing unless there's wounds before it. It's not just that Jesus came into the world to conquer sin, Satan, and death. It's that. Of course it's that. But it's that the vehicle by which he brings his kingdom into the world is humility, weakness, and suffering. And incomprehensibly, that somehow makes him, God, more beautiful to us and makes our bond with him and our trust in him even stronger than it otherwise would have been if he was just perfect. This universe, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to wrap your brain around this. This universe is someday going to be resurrected and raised up more beautiful than if if it had always been perpetually perfect. And what that means for you specifically is all your pain and all your regret and all your mistakes and all of the suffering and every little slice of hell that you have ever taken. Somehow, what God does is he takes all of that and he raises it up in a way that it is more beautiful, better, than if it had always been just perpetually perfect. Now, okay, so you and I actually have a ton to look forward to. And what you believe about the future absolutely impacts the way you live your life in the present. Understand that? What you believe is coming in the future absolutely impacts uh, your approach to life right now here in the present. And so the question for us then is, in the 70 or 80 years that we get here on earth, if we ask ourselves, if the vehicle by which Jesus ushered in his kingdom was his own humility, weakness, and suffering, and he trots into Jerusalem, not even just on a donkey, but on a colt, a baby, humble, full of a donkey, and we are his captives, and his spirit lives inside of us, then if God is going to advance his kingdom through us, how does that shape our understanding? Um, it's, probably not as, it's probably not as simple as this, but I'm going to put it like this. In the way, I'm jumping ahead a little bit to next week and Easter thoughts and resurrection thoughts, but I think it's important. A hundred years ago, we lived in our culture in the Western world what was what was described as a modernist culture. Uh, modernism, amongst other things, largely understood the world as being able to be explained or solved by science. 
And so with technological advancement, with scientific understanding, we'll be able to solve most of the world's problems. And therefore, since that was the naturalistic, materialistic view of the universe, the primary questions that people who were skeptic of the, skeptical of the Bible would ask around Easter and around the resurrection is, is this possible? Can you actually raise a human being to life? Is there such a thing as life beyond the grave? Those kinds of questions. I don't think people are asking those questions quite the same way anymore. And I'll tell you why. In a postmodern generation, 100 years later, what you have is essentially people, maybe my age or younger, a lot of the times in a postmodern mindset, they're saying, you know what, science has failed us in so many ways. Science has been used to, like, weaponized in order to hurt people. And for that matter, with every science advancement, it, every solving, it just creates 10 more questions that we still don't have answered. And so I don't think the average postmodern person today is asking, is it possible to potentially raise human life? I think most people are, my age and younger are okay with that concept. I think what people are by and large are asking is, does it make a difference? Like, is it relevant? Does that change this world? Does that change the next world? And so what I want to close is just spending a couple minutes saying yes, absolutely. Does it change our eternity? Yes. Why? Because it means this life is not all that there is. Uh, assuming that Jesus Christ rose from the grave, and he did, that very clearly means this life is not all there is. It means that we get to, we get to see our loved ones who pass away in Christ again. So this isn't the end. We get more time to become the version of ourselves that we are always created, redeemed, and empowered and destined to be. We know that the riches and the experiences that we'll get in eternity are so much better than the experiences in this lifetime. And so you don't have to spend all your days trying to, like the fear of missing out thing. Christians don't have to fear of missing out on anything. You don't have to squeeze every possible trip and every possible thing out of this lifetime. You're going to get it all and more. It means we don't have to uh, fear death. And it means that our suffering is going to be completely gone. So does the resurrection mean anything for our eternity? Absolutely. But if you believe about the eternity, what it does is it changes the way you testify to eternity right now. In other words, the way that you live right now says everything about what you believe is coming in your future. And here's what that means. The resurrection proves God cares about the physical world. We're not just spending our time, 70, 80 years here, biding our time till we get to heaven and then just kind of twiddling our thumbs, figuring it out and doing whatever what, what we want and following our passions here on earth. No, it has a purpose. We care for this world. If we are following as captives behind King Jesus and his spirit is inside of us, what we're also doing is we're moving forward in humility and weakness and even in suffering. We're not afraid to have it cost something to us if it might mean that every time we do, the Holy Spirit advances the kingdom one more step at a time. And therefore, whenever you forgive people who hurt you, even though they don't say that they're sorry, whenever you spend your money on those who are in need, even when they don't deserve it, whenever you restrict your sexuality to God's design, not just what you feel, whenever you befriend those that the rest of the world casts aside, whenever you care for life in this world that this world would otherwise terminate, whenever you fast more than you consume, Whenever you follow God's word, don't just follow your heart. Whenever you celebrate the successes of other people as much or more than yourself. Whenever you live out of the verdict of the one opinion that actually matters instead of living for the verdict of seven billion people that you don't even know. Whenever you nonviolently rebel against materialism, 
busyness, desperation, the awful isms of life, the darkness of this present age, when you're not afraid to follow Jesus in humility and weakness and even in suffering and lay down your life, that's a testimony. That's how people come to see that there's something better than this present life. When Jesus comes into the saddle of your life, it breaks you in absolutely the most healthy of ways. So each day repent and continue to invite him and all of his grace and his lordship into that saddle. And uh, I want to close with this. There's about a dozen quotes that I like to use every year, but I have to restrict myself to only using them once a year because I like them so much. But one of my favorite ones from some extant literature to the Bible from about 120 AD in a series of letters is uh, a letter called from the Epistle of Methetus to Diognetus. And it's one of the first statements we have about the early Christian church. And it goes like this. These people have a common table, but not a common bed. Even that's an extraordinary statement because the Romans were, generally speaking, happy to share their beds with anybody and everybody. But they were more stingy with their money. Not the Christians. They were the opposite. Christians, I'm only going to give my bed to one other person. That's who I marry. But I'm going to give my money to anybody who needs it. I'm going to set a place at the table for anybody who's hungry. They were very, very uh, strict with their sexuality and very liberal with their finances and their food. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh, these Christians. They pass their days on earth, but they know that they're citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws. It's not that they're, sometimes the criticism of a Christian is that people who are heavenly minded are of no earthly good. And I'm sorry, that's just historically not true. It might be true for some Christians, and it might be true in some eras in the history of the Christian church in some locations. But from the early church on, it's not true. They obey the laws, and at the same time, they surpass the laws by their lives. They love all people, and yet they are persecuted by all. We'll ask God to resurrect that into our lives right now. Lord Jesus, guard our hearts and minds this holy week. Destroy our flesh to raise new life. Our hope is entirely in you, our Savior. Hosanna and amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.